A tiger tamer who went to sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Welcome to the third BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine. Let me quickly tell you what we've got in store. First up, I'm talking to Professor Jonathan Phillips, who's written a fascinating feature in the August issue of the magazine, all about the Second Crusade. After that, have you ever wondered what it was like to sail on a Viking warship? Right now, there's a recreated Viking boat in the middle of the North Sea. It's on a voyage from Denmark to Dublin. We've got a special report direct from the ship. And finally, I've had a quick chat with Nicholas Crane, the man who famously trekked across Britain with his trademark umbrella for the BBC's Map Man and Coast series. His latest project is to follow in the footsteps of travellers who have explored Britain at various times over the last thousand years. I ask him what he's learned, and find out some surprising revelations about beaver's testicles. Now, of course, you can read more about all of these subjects in the August issue of the magazine. It's brimming with other features as well. We've got the partition of India in 1947, a short history of blasphemy, a curious tale of stuffed animals at the 1851 Great Exhibition, and an examination of what it really means to be a Celt. We've also launched a competition to find the most enigmatic or bizarre historic gravestone in the UK. There's a great prize on offer to the winner, so tend to the magazine for more on that, or take a look at our website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com. You can buy the magazine in all good news agents in the UK. It's monthly, goes on sale on the last Tuesday of the month for £3.60. Now you can save money in a trip to the shops by subscribing. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues. And with that you're saving 25% on the cover price. You can order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine and quote pod07. Alternatively, you can call our hotline on 0844 844 0250. And now, let's find out a little more about the Crusades. Jonathan Phillips is Professor of Crusading History at the Royal Holloway University of London, and his latest book, The Second Crusade, Extending the Frontiers of Christendom, is going to be published by Yale University Press in September 2007. Professor Phillips. Okay, so the First Crusade. It was an astonishing success for the Christian soldiers, but the second was a disastrous failure. So what went wrong? There's a number of reasons why the Second Crusade failed. It was pretty poorly funded. The kings of Europe didn't do a particularly good job in getting their their money together. Europe was hit by a famine, actually, the year they were trying to get the thing going. So it wasn't really in in a sort of very good position to fund a crusade. A crusade's incredibly expensive. You know, it's supposed to take a night three years' worth of its annual income. And a famine is not a good time to try and get that kind of cash together. 
He was poorly led. It has to be said, Louis VII of France was a, a pretty inexperienced military leader, and as he's marching across Asia Minor, really the Seljuk Turks find this out, and they do break up the Crusaders, and they take advantage of their lack of discipline. But I think the two main reasons why the Crusade failed is that the Crusaders are really a bit too overconfident. They've set out from Western Europe with this idea ringing in their ears, the First Crusade succeeded, you guys are going to succeed as well. You're a lucky generation. You are. It's inevitable you're going to succeed. And so there's a sort of, you know, expectation, I think, with perhaps a little less care and a little less caution than they, they should have had. The other big contrast is the enemy that they faced. In 1099, the First Crusade, of course, was the First Crusade, and the Muslim world didn't know what had hit it and was in a very, very divided and, and sort of broken-down state. Fifty years down the road, the idea of jihad, the Muslim holy war, is getting going again. And you've got some strong Muslim leaders who are able to pull their people together and, and form a much stronger enemy for the Second Crusade to deal with. OK, so the Second Crusaders had, had a, a, a much harder time than the First Crusaders in many ways. Yeah. But, the, but the big success of the Second Crusade, as you say in, in the feature that you've written for the magazine, is the recruitment drive, the way that, that they got people to go on this crusade in the first place. So can you just talk us through the way that was achieved? Yeah, I mean, this is, as you say, the great success of the Second Crusade. It, it's brilliantly done, actually. Compared to the First Crusade, where it's a sort of random preachers, which, although they've got a very potent message, it's a rather disparate collection of people going about the recruitment, the Second Crusade is really carefully controlled. If you want to sort of put it in a modern way, it would be sort of keeping the people on message. There's very, very sort of close regulation of what these people are going to say. And they're systematically sent out around Europe to make sure everywhere is covered. The message that they're putting over has got some familiar bits from the First Crusade. I mean, you know, help Christians in the East, you will get remission of all your sins, that is, you will avoid the punishments of hell for your, for your sinful lives. But the big thing that they push, uh, and, and this I think is, is one of the reasons why it's so successful in pulling people on board, is a recollection of the First Crusade. The First Crusade was an amazing success. Western Europe was astounded by this. And it provokes a sort of an efflorescence of historical writing, memorialization in song, in buildings, and in narratives. The capture of Jerusalem really resonates throughout Christendom. And that memory is sustained in every decade from 1099 down to the Second Crusade in the late 1140s. These men are built up as heroes. And really what the Second Crusaders are being told is that you have to live up to the deeds of your forefathers. It's, it's a sense of honor that's being pushed here. We're, we're in the age when chivalry is just getting going. And, you know, the, the notion that, that you will fail your fathers is, is a very, very powerful one. Of course, you'll be failing God as well. And, and some of the lines they use um, in the text, they say, if God forbid it passes differently, the bravery of the fathers will be diminished in the hands of the sons. I mean, you know, shame on you if you don't live up to the great deeds of your forefathers. So I think really this, this um, combination of these ideas, honor, remission of sins, helping Christians in the East, is, is an extraordinarily potent combination. And that's what the preachers of the Second Crusade succeed in putting over. Right. And talking about the, the people who bought into this idea of, of something which you could achieve a great deal of honour from, I recall two themes from my classroom teaching of the Crusades. Is one that the Crusades were, the Crusaders were generally the second sons of the yeah. nobility who had no inheritance to look forward to and so had to go and find their fortunes elsewhere. And two, that the church wanted these men out of Christendom so they wouldn't go around causing trouble. So what's the truth in that probably quite limited picture for what happened in the Second Crusade? 
the idea of the, of the Crusaders being second sons in the nobility has been pretty thoroughly debunked. Historians have looked at the sort of the, the relationship between different Crusaders, and you can see that it's fathers and sons, um, brothers going, uh, all different sort of family combinations that you can think about. I mean, the point about second sons is if they haven't got any, any land, then they haven't got any money. They're going to find it more difficult than anybody else to finance themselves on a crusade. So that one really doesn't work. It was an idea that a French historian came up with in the 1960s applying to one family, and you can just break it down across the board for the first crusade and the second crusade. The idea that the church wanted these sort of thugs, if you like, out of Christendom, um, not causing trouble there, exporting Christian violence, if you like, is very strong at the time of the First Crusade. Uh, in the late 11th century, Europe is pretty violent. Um, there's a serious lack of central authority. Fifty years down the road, things are changing a bit. I mean, the King of France has got a lot more power in his lands. Um, the nobility is generally stronger. The idea of sort of castellans and, and groups of knights kind of running amok is much, much less frequent, if you like. So I don't think that's such a big issue by the time you get to the Second Crusade. Okay, but further to that, did the appeal for the Second Crusade that sold the First Crusade as these great heroes, did that extend beyond the nobility? So, so did the foot soldiers of the Second Crusade leave with that same idea of making heroes and, and winning honour for themselves, or were they simply forced into going? That's a really interesting question, actually. In short, I don't actually know the answer to it. I think it's a bit of both, actually. They, they can't, I mean, Europe is saturated with the success of the First Crusade. It's just there for everybody to, to know about, to admire and look up to. I mean, it's sort of, the idea of crusading honour has sort of permeated people's behaviour and writing and literature across the board. So I'd be surprised if they were immune to it, even if, if they're not nobles, that the idea of, of success and being the first man over the wall so you, everybody's going to know your name from then on is undoubtedly going to be attractive. Having said that, there is, of course, this element in, in nobility and crusading. If the boss says he's going and you're his squire, you'll say, good idea, sir. Um, you know, I'm coming too. You, you won't have a choice. Hmm. Okay. Now, so given the failure of the Second Crusade to really achieve anything for the knights who went there, did that then affect recruitment for the succeeding crusades? Did they have trouble persuading people to go after that? Well, the, the Second Crusade, just, just to nuance that a little bit, has got elements to the Baltic and elements in Spain. The element in Spain does actually defeat the Spanish Muslims and, and is quite successful. Um, the, the element against the pagans in the Baltic, um, less so. But the key bit, of course, when we think of crusading, is, is the campaign in the Holy Land. And the consequences of that were pretty dire for the settlers in the Latin East. As one writer put it, from this time onwards, our condition became seriously worse. There is a sense that the Western Crusaders felt betrayed by the nobles in the East. They thought they'd done a deal behind their backs with the defenders of Damascus. And again, we don't know whether that's true or not, but there certainly was a strong belief or circulation of this kind of idea. There's a mistrust um, towards the settlers. Hmm. I mean, part of that is, of course, these Western kings. Also, actually, the Second Crusade is the first time that kings go on a crusade. They've been told they're going to succeed. They're absolutely you know, convinced that they have this almost divine right to, to victory. And when it goes wrong, somebody's got to be to blame, and it certainly isn't going to be them. Sure, sure. Okay, so taking this forward a bit, do you draw any parallels between the way that Crusaders were inspired to take the cross in military service for God back then in the medieval period and the way that religious extremists today are encouraged to take up arms? There's some loose parallels, I guess. In medieval times, you're certainly told that it's your religious duty to do this, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim. 
It's quite striking, actually, if you look at the preaching of the jihad and the crusade, that the ideas are, are so, so similar. It, it's, it's really remarkable, um, the idea that, you know, it is your duty to defend your people and your people's lands a- against your religious enemy. And, okay, in the West now, of course, we are under secular authority. I mean, you know, you, you can't have a religious war in modern Western society. In Islam, of course, you can have a religious leader calling for a jihad, particularly if it's, it's an Islamic state, and then everybody has got to share in their duty, and they will feel, as we hear these suicide bombers feel, um, that they will be rewarded in heaven for their sacrifice, for their martyrdom, as they see it. So there is a loose parallel there to be drawn. Okay, but only a loose parallel. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and finally, your job title is Professor of Crusading History. Now, that's clearly a hot topic today, in part because of the increasing level of religious extremism. So how contentious an area of study is it? When you're teaching it and talking about it, do you find that the subject still inspires strong emotion? Yes, it certainly does. I mean, people have got ideas about crusaders and about what has motivated them. You know, they're all greedy. Uh, They're all out for land or they're all religious fanatics. I mean, be they Christians or Muslims, in fact, in in some of these circumstances. And so I suppose part of what one has to do is to try and nuance that and say that there's a lot of things at work there. Um, Why I suppose it's, it's still contentious is that crusading is still a word that's widely in use in Western society. And I think in, in the West we had until perhaps the last five or six years very sort of gentle use of it. You know, it's a good cause. You're a crusader to cancer waiting list or, or something like that. But now, given events in recent years, it's much more live and it has a much more sort of dynamic and pertinent feel, particularly in, in the Islamic world. I mean, when George Bush called for a crusade against the forces of terror, he gave such a propaganda gift to Osama bin Laden who was able to say, look, Bush has called the new crusade against us. He said it, you all heard it. That This kind of link between aggressive Westerners coming in, killing Muslims, taking their land, is very, very easy to draw. And it's a perception the Westerners struggle. I mean, the invaders captured in Iran the other week were called crusaders, I saw at one point. But this, I have to say, again, we need a perspective on this. Drawing links back to the past like that isn't actually new. It's not a 21st century phenomenon. In the 1960s, for example, Nasser compared himself to Saladin. Uh, an awful lot, President Nasser of Egypt. Mm. And he did this by playing Saladin not as a religious hero, <laughs> which, of course, uh, he's portrayed, at, uh, portrayed as by someone like Osama bin Laden, but as a diplomat and as a pan-Arabist. So you can manipulate these people in all sorts of different ways to suit your different agendas. Um, but the point I'm making is that, while, yes, it, it is inspires particularly strong emotions today. The ideas of crusading and the history of crusading is something that's been kept alive and can be used and brought into play over many, many decades. Hmm. So, I mean, it's clearly quite dangerous for politicians like George Bush to be invoking the the Crusades. Now, are are people like that becoming um, more concerned about their use of language? Do you think think the the looseness of the use of the term Crusades in in current political situation is becoming a bit more controlled? Do you think people are understanding the danger of that? Absolutely. I heard an interview with Tony Blair and and on the Today programme, he was asked, do you think you are a crusader? I think it was referring to him, you know, working for good causes. Hmm. And he, he sidestepped it completely. There's no way that he was going to have that word attached to him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, however appropriate it might be in terms of um, I'm doing something that I feel is morally right to actually hook into that history of religiously sanctioned warfare, um, this, this dominant sense of moral right, and the West, I suppose, being aggressive. Uh, is something that there's, there's no way any sensible politician would, would do these days. 
Right. Well, thanks very much, Professor Phillips, for a fascinating insight into the Second Crusade. Thank you very, very much. much indeed. And now, from the Crusades to the Vikings. And this is a special report that's been put together by the BBC producers who are in the support ship that's accompanying a recreated Viking longboat as it attempts to cross the North Sea. You can follow the progress of the ship on the website, which is www.bbc.co.uk forward slash history, forward slash programs, forward slash Viking voyage. And there'll also be a Time Watch program on BBC Two sometime in the autumn, plus a feature in BBC History magazine in October on this. So here, Nathan Williams finds out what conditions are like on board from one of the Viking ship's crew. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Louise and I'm crewman on the Sea Stallion and I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark. Protections do you have from the elements on board? None. Uh, we're, we're sailing in an open deck ship, uh, so we can't go below deck when it's raining and windy and we don't, don't have a cabin to go into. So when sleeping at night and it's raining, you just put on your waterproof and the only protection we have from the cold is actually woolen blankets. How does the ship behave in the conditions of the open sea? Surprisingly well. We didn't know before we went on this journey. We sailed last year to Norway, but weren't really tried that much. It was really nice weather. We were, sa- we were sailing when it was a heat wave in Scandinavia. And this year we've been tried much more. Harder wind, rain, 24 hours a day. And we were all a bit anxious to see how the ship would behave. But it felt safe to be on board and it felt like the ship moved amazingly through through the water. Constructed for sailing on open sea as well as close to the coastlines. How much of the time is spent rowing? And if you do spend a lot of time rowing, is it tiring? It can be tiring to row and you get a, a lot of uh, big blisters on your hand. But we don't row that much. It is mainly a sailing ship. The rowing part is mainly when going in and out of harbour. Or if the, the wind is not good enough, and often when, when you have a sail of 112 square metres, you can use the sail quite often. We have six jewels on board, 13 each side, but we don't use them all at one time. That's only when we sail into an, an area that we want to impress. Otherwise, we used every third or second oar. So we're two or three people on one oar, so you can row for an hour rest for half an hour and then row for an hour again. Conditions must be cramped on board. How are you coping with the lack of privacy? They are cramped. We've estimated that we have about 0.8 square metres per person with their luggage, and that's less than chickens in a cage have today. But it's okay. You quickly get used to it, mainly because there's nothing else to do. You you can't move somewhere else if you feel cramped. And um, I think it, it takes a lot of patience for the crew members. And if you don't have that patience, if you really like your privacy, you're not supposed to be in a project like this. Uh, patience and tolerance is a big part of being on board uh, the Sea Stallion. And are you getting any sleep on board when you're at sea? We do have times to rest. Our entire day is divided into four hours of sleep, four hours of rest. But there are times when it's a tough sail. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to get sleep. 
you have sprays of water coming over the ship's side. Um, you have work with the sail. Maybe you have to, to change the sail. You have to take the sail up and down. And then you don't really get any rest. The first couple of, of days you're on board, people don't sleep a lot because you come from your house, you come from your apartment and your, your soft bed and you have to get used to being on board again. But it's different. Because we're sailing close to the coastlines and we are waiting for the right wind when we're sailing, we do stay on land a lot. So that's when the crew really sleeps and they get a good night's sleep. When being on board, we can only sleep for four hours. And a lot of the time we sleep sitting up and maybe just closing one eye, keeping one eye open if, we, if our help is needed. How feathered do you think the experience is proving to be? And do you think you're getting a sense of what it would have been like to sail on a Viking ship a thousand years ago? I think there's two things that I can get out of a, a project like this uh, and the rest of the crew as well. You learn something about yourself. You learn about your patience and tolerance, how good you are with other people. We are 62 people together, 24 hours a day. When we pee, when we eat, when we sleep, when we change our clothes, when we bathe. And you also learn a bit about your own courage and how much you can take the cold and the fact that you're sailing in, in tough areas. And then there's the more historical side. And I do think that we get an insight into how they organised their warfare and their warships back then. For example, that time shift that we have, four hours of sleep, four hours of rest, that's known throughout the maritime history. The fact that we're lying here on our fifth day without any wind to cross over to Orkney. That's uh, probably uh, the same conditions that the Vikings had and, and they had to put that into their timetable when sailing. So I do think even though we have all these modern gears on board, we do get an insight into the way of a Viking ship would sail back then. Finally, another modern day explorer who's been retracing historic journeys is Nicholas Crane, whose BBC series Great British Journeys airs on BBC Two in August. I've asked him what he's learned from his odyssey. You followed the footsteps of eight different travellers across Britain, and I, I presume that conditions were very different between, say, Gerard of Wales's journey in the 12th century through Defoe's British tour in the 18th to H.B. Morton's in the 20th and yours today. Did you get any idea, as a 21st century traveller, of the tribulations of the journeys of your predecessors? Well, it depended on, on which traveller I was following. Um, some of them were much more forthcoming than others about the difficulties on the road that they face. Somebody like Daniel Defoe very rarely mentions the difficulties of travel. But Celia Fiennes, who was travelling at about the same time, uh, she was actually travelling at the end of the tail end of the 17th century, has all sorts of wonderfully revolting details about life on the road, from putting up with frogs and snails in her room in Ely, which was then surrounded by floods. This was in the depth of a, the Little Ice Age, when Britain's climate was bouncing up and down like a yo-yo, and uh, weather was very unpredictable. We had very long winters, extraordinarily wet seasons, which completely flooded areas like the Fens, which were notoriously difficult to get across during the, the 16th and 17th century. Uh, Celia Fiennes' writing is, is very personalised. She didn't ever really mean her journals to be published, so they're a, an off-the-cuff account of life on the road. So she doesn't hold back from telling you when she's wet and miserable if she gets thrown from a horse she tells you when she's held up by highwaymen you hear about it in in all its details so it's a very complete and colorful account of life on the road daniel defoe writing at the same time might have been writing if you'd compare the two accounts in a completely different era totally different approach he stands right back it's a very masculine, quite an egocentric account, quite considered. His tour through the whole island of Great Britain is 
arguably Britain's first guidebook. And he's being as objective as he can. And part of that objectivity is in removing himself from the story. Um, If you go right back, say, to Gerald of Wales, you would think that a medieval travel account might also be fairly sterile. But actually, it's a complete opposite. Um, There are parts of Gerald's 12th century account of his circumnavigation around the the perimeter of Wales, trying to raise recruits for the Third Crusade, which read like a a medieval Bill Bryson. He gets trapped in quicksand, South Wales, because the the, the main coast road from Newport along the south coast to St. David's, which was then one of the most important pilgrimage destinations in Europe, um, actually followed in some places the beach because the mountains come down straight into the water. The only way of actually making easy progress from east to west was by following the tide line between the high tide mark and the low tide mark and of course where you get these very fast flowing uh, mountain rivers pouring out across wet sand and the and the very extreme tides of the seven estuary the bristol channel you got these super saturated sands which could suck a horse down and they got trapped in quicksand there and there's uh, one of my favorite accounts from gerald of Wales' journey is uh, when he's traveling over a high mountain pass which nobody's really successfully identified but up, up until now people have thought it was on the edge of snowdonia i'm absolutely certain it wasn't in snowdonia at all but uh, on the uh, clain peninsula just the uh, the northeast of nevin okay. okay over a little group of mountains called the eiffel mountains and if you plot the route he must have been taking on that day he wouldn't have gone near Snowdonia at all. And I'm absolutely certain that the reason he was taking was over this is a shortcut over the Eiffel Mountains using what was probably a, an abandoned Roman road or, a, or at least a, a route that the Romans had used to uh, perhaps to march in camp and outpost on the Clane Peninsula, which um, back then was one of the few areas of northern Wales that could be used for uh, uh, arable and pastoral agriculture level there along the Anglesey. It was a bit of a breadbasket up there. So there were, there were reasons for using it as a shortcut. You know, yeah. As you know, before the days of wheeled vehicles, yeah, the freight routes used to take the shortest line between A and B rather than the kind of thing that a, a modern motor road does, which is to, to make a long circuit to keep the gradients down. And so we, one of the things we investigated in the film and when I wrote the book was actually trying to identify this mountain pass because Gerald talks about it. And it's a lovely description. He, he talks about the long and very difficult winding ascent, how exhausting it was. He was travelling with the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the first time an Archbishop of Canterbury had ever been to Wales. And they were trying to muster these arches, these uh, famous Welsh archers, to go out and fight in the Holy Land and relieve Jerusalem. And and they weren't having a very good uh, time of it. The Welsh weren't being particularly responsive to the idea of holy wars in the Middle East. But they had to climb this big mountain pass. It was probably the highest point ever reached on the whole circumnavigation and certainly Gerald makes quite a big deal of it in describing the difficulty of climbing to top and uh, when they get to the top they collapse for a rest on the ground and the archbishop uh, jokes about the difficulties of the road and uh, they, they can hear a bird and uh, they're trying to guess what sort of bird it is is it an oriole or is it a nightingale somebody suggests and the somebody said well it can't be a nightingale because nightingales don't come to uh, the mountains of northern wales and uh, so the archbishop quips that uh, nightingale's a very wise bird if it never comes to wales because um, it's completely worn out having made this extraordinary journey for weeks all the way around the outside of wales and quicksands and stony roads and obviously a lot of difficulties in terms of uh, security because they could only go around the outside of wales in what you might regard as a anglo-norman security zone the inner part of wales was still 
very much controlled by the princes, these um, semi-autonomous princes of central Wales, who are a pretty fearsome bunch. And uh, just a couple of years after the great journey Gerald made, they all rose up and, uh, and took several castles and so on. So it was, it was a very unstable part of the British Isles. And the journey was, it reads like a, a fully-blown conquistadors expedition from three centuries later it's uh, or five centuries later rather it's a it's a fantastic tale and uh, and very readable and one of the things that makes it so special is that it isn't just a historical account or an ecclesiastical record it's a natural history in fact arguably it's the first natural history of wales and uh, for example on the tyvee when they follow the river tyvee from its mouth up to its source at Stratton, Florida Abbey, and Gerald's descriptions, for example, of, of beavers and salmon on the Tyvee are absolutely astonishing. It provides theories about how and why the salmon can leap up waterfalls. And a huge exposition on the life of beavers, the building of the dams and uh, how they procreate, and the fact that beavers' testicles are a, a great delicacy. And one of the uh, aspects of, of beavers that he relates is that uh, beavers have a, a developed technique of saving their lives. Uh, they're killed for their testicles, and so beavers used to uh, cut off their own testicles and throw them before the hunters to uh, spare their own lives. Very drastic. Uh, well, interesting drastic stuff, measure. given that beavers have just been reintroduced into Britain, yeah, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'd we'll have to keep our eyes out, just like <laughs> cutting off their privates to spare themselves. <laughs> Quite right. Yeah. So when you were following in the footsteps of these historical travels, it sounds like you were getting some historical insight as well into for instance you were talking about about the possible route of Gerald around Wales what sort of things were you learning about from a historical sense well um, I'm not a historian or an archaeologist but I've always believed that by taking the primary source you know the original account of a journey or indeed the description of a fixed place out to that place out to that route you can you can come up with insights and we found this a lot making a series called map man where we were looking at various maps that had, had effectively described britain from the middle ages through to the modern tube map and you found if you took one of these old maps out the landscape it was covering and looked in detail at that landscape you could come up with insights that had been missed in the past and that had some validity despite the fact that I'm not an academic or a scholar. And I do believe that quite profoundly, that if you spend long enough immersing yourself in an account and you do tramp over those routes looking carefully, you can come up with insights. And there are several, in fact, there's quite a lot of them scattered through the whole series, things that we've, we, we came across that make sense. And sometimes they're quite unexpected. You can go to, for example, making a film about Thomas Pennant, who mounted a journey of exploration, a voyage of exploration to the, the Hebrides at the same time that James Cook was going off to explore the Southern Ocean. But this was a time when Scotland hadn't yet been explored. So here we have corner of the British Isles, which is yet to be opened up um, to to a wider public at the same time that New Zealand and Australia had yet to be opened up. So Thomas Pennant sets off from the Clyde in a 90-ton cutter with his fellow scientists and the crew to explore the islands and the highlands of the far north. And it's an expedition supported by the Royal Society. It has two scientists with him. They're collecting flora and fauna. Pennant himself is a gentleman scientist, uh, an amateur, but somebody who, whose, whose interests spread from everything from you know, what he called the Pictish houses, the brocks that have now been recorded very carefully in the north, but at the time there, uh, not many people have been up there looking for brocks, 
to agriculture and, and fishing and so on. But what he came back with was something completely different. He, he set off on this scientific expedition. What he actually found up there was extreme poverty being caused um, by a, a feudal system of land management that was literally leading to whole islands being reduced to starvation levels. And when he lands on Canna, for example, he beats himself up for not having brought any fish hooks with him. Uh, he'd brought trinkets to hand over to the natives, as people did in those days to, uh, you know, to facilitate a passage into untrodden land. But he really beat himself up not having anything useful with him. What they really were desperate for were fish hooks, just so they could feed themselves. And uh, so I went to Canna. We chartered a, a 90-ton tall ship, uh, similar to the one that Pennant had, and sailed up through the, the Western Isles uh, for a day and a night, which was fairly alarming. It's, it was in winter, and, and it, they're, they're quite dangerous dangerous seas and difficult coastlines. So we managed to get a flavor then of what it must be like for him. Landed on Canna and met several of the local people, one of whom took us up on, onto the mountaintop and showed us abandoned sheilings. These would have been the very sheilings that were being clung onto when Pennant came by in 1772. You could see the round circles of, of stone beneath the turf that would once have been covered by a very crude roof of turf and where the transhumance shepherds and cattle miners would have lived in through the summer season just hanging on to an existence in this very very bleak place and uh, you know when you when I, was, I was crouching in one of these ruined sheilings with so the woman who had taken us up there and just felt so bleak so bleak um, because the land was hopelessly overpopulated for the amount of food you could get off it extraordinary extraordinary stuff just just to finish off you've been all over britain now with your your various tv series for our readers who have a historical bent is there one place that uh, that occurs to you which you would you would go back to with historic interest where where for, for historian in britain is the is the one place you, you'd like to visit well, I wouldn't know where to start, you know, Dave, actually. I mean, there's, uh, there's all sorts. I'm very drawn to the landscapes which tell us something about earlier climate eras. And so some of those remarkable things I've seen are, are say, mesolithic footprints in the mud of the Bristol Channel. Yeah, just fantastic. exposed between tide lines, and they were washed away and the next time the tide came. And I realized I was the only person to have seen these 30 or 40 footprints, along with the, the archaeologist who was with me at the time. He took me, showed them to me, and said, they're going to be gone when the tide comes in, and we saw them. And uh, they're as clear as if they'd been made the day before. And not far away, there was the, uh, the foundations of a of a temporary Iron Age, again, another transhumance shelter, probably used by cattle uh, herders who brought their cattle down on salt marshes during the summer and then went away again. But, of course, now it's down, buried in the mud, or had been exposed between the tides, down between the tide lines. But back in the Mesolithic, it would have been um, clearer, higher, clearer of the water. And the Brocks, I'm terribly drawn by the Brocks up in the north. They are absolutely magnificent. I think the single most astonishing structure, physical structure, man-made structure I've seen anywhere in the British Isles is the Brock on, on Musa, the island of Musa, up in the Shetlands. And it's, it's partly because they're mysterious and uh, we don't know for certain what they're for. There are hundreds of them, as you know, up and down the islands and islands. And nobody seems to be quite certain whether they were symbols of, of local power, whether they were granaries, whether they were forts, whether they were refuges to withdraw into in times of, of, under times of threat. But the one on Musa is the largest surviving one. It's 13 metres tall, this cylindrical tower with no windows, very low door you have to crawl in through, and then a spiral staircase worming its way up between two two walls as if it's double glazed in solid granite and they are remarkable structures I'd, I'd love to do a bit of time travel and flash back 2000 years and and see what they're being used for in the iron age 
Thanks, Nick. That's fantastic. And uh, I'm thoroughly looking forward to uh, watching your series, which is on in August, I think. August the 12th, yeah. It starts going out Sunday nights at 8. Smashing. And you've got a book as well? Yep, the book will be coming out at the same time, early August. Thanks, Nick. Hope you've enjoyed this BBC History Magazine podcast. Do listen again next month for more on the latest happenings in the history world.